Hey, welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Dalway Khrushchev from oh, nice. the Netherlands, um, who is a relative of David Khrushchev, who has not been on the podcast, but has been on my stream quite a bit as a camera maker in his own right. Uh, but today, Dalway is going to tell us about his homemade photographic journey and an amazing enlarger he has built. Dalway, oh. welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how'd you, how'd, who are you? Where, where are you from? Uh, how'd you get into photography? Yeah, so uh, I'm Dawa Kosov. I live in Amsterdam and uh, I work in FinTech, which is essentially software for banks, etc., modernizing things and do product marketing these days. I've also spent a lot of time analyzing salespeople and their, uh, and their deals, etc. But uh, that's really quite a bit far away from what I do hobby-wise. Uh, I do a lot of photography and I do a little bit of digital and a lot of analog and it's definitely the pandemic here has made me a lot more creative because there's just so much to do if you can't go anywhere right and um, that has been really good um, I've been shooting film for about 16 years and it basically all started with having a girlfriend that thought that me, the computer nerd, would not like her analog camera at all. And before she knew it, I was shooting more film than she did. Um, started with my dad, old camera, like a Canon A1. And when that gave up the ghost, I pretty quickly got into older cameras. And uh, the DIY stuff started with trying to revive old fixed lens rangefinders with stuck leaf shutters, poorly adjusted rangefinders and all that type of stuff. Hey, let me butt in real quick. Doe, what's your um, what's your favorite fixed lens rangefinder? Ah, yeah, that's the Konica Auto S2 with the Hexanon 45.18. And uh, I've taken apart and revived, I think, three of those. And when the light meter works, it, that's a fantastic camera. The lens is great. The you know the the parallax correcting frame lines are great. Rangefinder patches, um, well above sort of the cameras of the era and uh, I did, uh, the resolution is great I, I made a lot of really really good photos with that camera i love that you said when the light meter works because <laughs> that is the achilles heel of like that camera yeah. the yashica electros uh yeah, all, of all, them. Sorts of, yeah. all of them yeah all of them are basically taking time bombs so, i just uh, i just took one of those apart and uh, but it was the 126 version i think it's the uh, konica 261 and yeah. uh, I took one of those apart and uh, have harvested the lens. Um, yeah. So uh, they, yeah, the, those hexanons were excellent. Yeah, no, they're excellent, excellent lenses. You know, it was really the size of the East, you know, Konica. And uh, it's a pity they're, they're no longer around, but sort of got into the Sony sphere via Minolta. But yeah, so, so that was the gateway drug. And then I basically done some jazz photography and bars here in Amsterdam. That's sort of a project I did for a while. And um, at some point I started tinkering with, yeah, more alternative stuff. So sort of the first thing that I bought, uh, that I uh, bought was like a land camera, a Polaroid land camera. And I did my own pack film conversion, which is uh, this unit. And uh, at this time I didn't have any tools. This I built this in my student dorm. So this is really like, I don't know, 10 years ago at least. But um, so, and this was before the age of 3D printing. So this is all epoxy together. And I thought the camera on this 
this the camera's great. The rangefinder is actually from a different Polaroid land camera that I swapped, but I wanted a better lens. So I basically took a jeweler saw and I just basically hacked a hole in the middle and I glued on a Pentax bayonet so that I could stick on a Componon S135 millimeter lens. So that's like the standard lens for enlarging four by five. And I stuck that in a press shutter and, you know, just cable on it and just, you can focus and, uh, you know, shoot, um, you know, Fuji uh, pack film. And it worked great. It's a five, six, one, three, five. That's an extremely and, clean build. Uh, for those listening in audio, you know, it just kind of looks like a 110B with a funny, uh, a, you know, different lens board, but uh, that that thing could have come out of the factory. This, this was like months of work because, you know, you can only take every decision once, otherwise you're buying a new camera, right? And uh, that, that was definitely- um, That's what I've been right. doing wrong all of these years. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so so I have a I have sort of phases of lots of experimentation, but also phases of overthinking things too much, and then you want to sort of think it out until perfection before you start. But but these projects are much more fun. Just start, you don't know where it goes, and trying to make sensible decisions along the way, and yeah, you'll get somewhere. But I shot a lot of pack film, but I shot the very last pack out of my freezer. Uh, I think a couple of months ago on a birthday. And now eventually I'll have to actually do a Instax conversion for my um, RZ67. I think that's uh, the next thing on, on that. But uh, after that, it's just been not so much tinkering and more, I set up a dark room in my, in my basement. So I have two enlargers uh, up to six by seven in my basement to do some casual black and white printing. And uh, yeah, the next thing actually that, that really got DIY was when I bought a 3D printer, which is the start of the pandemic here in the Netherlands. I just discovered I could make so much more than just um, yeah, doing um, a little bit of gluing, filing, sawing, and epoxying. Because that's, yeah, if you don't have a workshop, it stops really quickly what you can do with optics, because you have to have a certain level of precision, at least to the level that you can adjust something. And uh, then I saw the, actually a friend of mine he uh, told me about the um, yeah, homemade uh, X-Pen alternatives. And that really got me going. Uh, so I started researching that. And I saw one with a really big Mamaya lens, uh, 50 millimeter lens, which was huge. And I thought, oh, I'll make one of those because it, that seems doable. It can't be too hard. Famous last words, obviously. But uh, <laughs> then, then I actually saw the podcast with Freeman Lin. And I thought, yeah, clearly this is the way to go. But my all my tinkering is really limited by the fact that I live in a small apartment and I don't have many machines. So the best machine I have is the uh, 3D printer at the moment, and the rest is just hand tools. Um, so I thought, so all my design is actually geared at how can I make it good, but how can I keep it simple, right? It, it's just out of necessity. So the, the next project that I did is, uh, uh, the panoramic camera. So this is my uh, X-Pen alternative. And this is the body of an XE, Minolta XE1 in, I think it's an XE7 in the US, XE1 in Europe and an XE in Japan. I wanted the black body, so I bought this for, I don't know, 12 euros on eBay 
shipping was more than the body. And um, on the front is the lens of a Fujika 645 scale focus. So the GS645W for wide. So it's a 4556. Uh, and um, that one I picked because it has uh, a helicoid built in for focusing, obviously. And it has already the diaphragm set up, uh, aperture, sorry, set up, and the shutter times. It's like one unit. You basically, I looked at that camera and thought, probably these Fuji guys were lazy and just stuck essentially a whole lens unit on the front of a plastic box. So I, I dug into some of the repair manuals and I figured that, yeah, it just has like a charging handle that you can use. So, and a very small release on the body of the lens itself. They just covered it up with a plastic cover. And I thought this is perfect because I have to do almost nothing. I just, just have to do the interface between the lens and the camera and I'm good. So that's what I did. The and only, the, the only problem with that is that those cameras are about $450. Yeah, I really you know, yeah, slash yeah. euros <laughs> a piece. So, uh, I mean, that, that still does make it cheaper than an X-Pan. Um, but no, no, no. did you yeah. did you find one that was trashed uh, or, uh, or in need of other? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't all that trashed. But uh, I tried to look for an alternative, which would be like a Schneider lens. Um, uh, super angle on 45 something, 47, I think they are. And they were exactly the same price. But then I also had to source uh, Helicoid. The project would take a lot longer. It was just not very economical to go that route. If you have access, if you happen to have a Schneider you know, on your bench somewhere, yeah, for sure, then you buy a Helicoid and go that way. But I just basically, I did the maths and it didn't make any sense at all. So yeah, and actually the Minolta is pretty nice because the prism, uh, isn't connected to the top plate. So the top plate comes apart in three parts, the prism housing, the left and the right. And that also made it a lot easier to build. So uh, all in all, that was a pretty nice uh, thing to build and also have a cyanotype print from a negative from this camera. I'll show you later. But uh, so, so that was, I don't know, end at the start of the year, it was sort of done. Now I'm just shooting it, which is great. And um, after shooting that thing, I, I got a friend who said, oh yeah, I'd like a print of that. And I said, well, sure, I can make a print for you. How, how large do you want it? And he said, yeah, I want it about this. <laughs> right? How am I going to make an analog print uh, without cheating and printing it digitally um, of that thing? So yeah, um, then I thought paper is really expensive. And then I remembered that I had been messing around with uh, UV light in and a larger for a completely different project I was tinkering with. So I was trying to build a watch dial, the face of a watch to put my own watch together, mechanical watch, because I had done some hacking on a Seiko watch because a friend got me into this thing. And then obviously I'm going to take shit apart. That's just you know inevitable. And going beyond putting third party parts together in a case and calling it today, I thought I should design my own dial because otherwise it's not very unique. And I thought, how am I get the precision out of making a dial without it looking like an eight-year-old did it? And I thought, well, what can I do in my small apartment and still get a great level of precision? So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll photo etch it. I'll make a six by six negative on black and white film, get it as close to ortho as I can, then that will be my mask. 
And then I basically, instead of enlarging it, I'll actually reduce it two times. And then I have the size of a watch dial. And then I'll use uh, UV lacquer as a photo mask. And I'll just do the same thing that I do for uh, uh, printed circuit boards. And that should work, except that it didn't. <laughs> because um, you have the most incredible bellows factor on your enlarger if you try to shrink something with your enlarger. Basically, your yeah. lens is like this much below your negative. We and should talk about this later, but um, I also used to try and make PCBs by hand, but now you can get them almost free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I use PCBs as dials for things, not watches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, oh, that's actually interesting. Yeah, that's good looking probably, uh, using them as dials. Yeah, I use uh, the gold-plated, like, exposed traces and pads as lettering. It's, it's very yeah. nice sometimes. Yeah. So the, I think the solution then is to make a very big watch, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. A <laughs> like a Fleeker on the original size, 56 millimeters. It's actually exactly the square of a 6 by 6 negative. So, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a lot better. But, um, yeah, for, for that, so I put my first UV light together for it. And it was actually super simple. So it was, in retrospect, it was stupid, but I think many people would try to start like this. So you get an, uh, a, um, a chip on board, so a COB type LED. Um, let's see if this will. Um, so this is about, the, the, the dies on this are 20, like an inch by an inch, about an inch square. And this is a 50 watt LED. I actually started with a 100 watt broad spectrum LED. I looked at the, um, spectral curve, and I thought, well, there should be enough UV light in there, it should be fine. And when you put a 100 volt LED on, the, on a al aluminum cooling block, still gets really hot, it puts out a ton of light, you need to put like two, uh, sun, two pairs of sunglasses on, but actually I got absolutely no result out of it. And then now I can name the factors that contributed to that failure, but before I didn't know, I, I, I just gave up. But then I got back to it when this friend of mine wanted a large print and I thought, how can I make a very large panoramic print you know, mildly, in a mildly cost-effective way? And I thought, well, um, buying paper on a roll, that's going to be a very expensive affair. And how do I get the curled up paper to actually lay flat? I don't have a vacuum easel or that kind of stuff. That's just... I have to say that uh, I love the fact that you didn't go to inkjet on this because that oh, would be oh, my first just, thought. Yeah, well, that's just cheating, right? That's too simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the adventure in that? <laughs> I, uh, but um, so then I, then I go back to Cyanotype because I thought, wait a minute, I have a UV lamp. I should just try this. And that's, and that's how it really started. So I had to, um, uh, basically I can, share my screen and show some pictures whilst I do this. You'll probably appreciate that. Uh, let me see, let me know actually if you can see it. Yep, we can see your screen. Uh, yeah, so my first <coughs> attempt was actually this. So basically you have the, I had a, a standard Durst M605, which is a six by six and larger Italian made. They're very nice, they're very sturdy and precise. And I bolted on a, 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 a macro bellows rail with a 3D printed part and uh, the lamp you just saw, because I thought if I just get the lamp the same distance away from the condenser block as the original, but then in the other direction, should be good, right? 
Well, <laughs> really, really not. Uh, so actually with a bit of puffing around, I, I got something. I got like small size prints like, like these, which is A6, which is uh, about four by six inches, I, I guess. And so yeah, it worked, but this was like a hour to an hour and a quarter exposure. So really, really long for very, very small. And um, it worked, but yeah, it, it, it didn't scale up because I wasn't going to overnight exposures and everything. And this is with that first light. Um, yeah. And yeah. you were talking about, okay. Yeah, it's with, uh, with this lamp essentially okay. uh, underneath the thing. And uh, so, but that really got me thinking because I thought, well, it's a result, right? I can do something with this. If I can just, uh, I put in, well, I, I got this when I put in um, a, 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 not the 100 watt, but the 50 watt, uh, same type, but 50 watt and UV. And I thought, okay, uh, I had a 395 nanometer UV. I thought, okay, UV should be fine. Um, not quite, but um, it was a good start. And I thought, if I just improve a couple of these factors, surely it can go twice as large. Um, and there must be room in there. At least I can just, you know, put a put an LED in that is twice as bright, or I can just wait twice as long. But I should be able to scale this up. Okay, okay. Go, I want to know: Did you wind up making it brighter or adjusting the spectrum? Yeah. So um, actually, make it adjusting the spectrum, but a bit later. Uh -huh. At first, I thought I need to make it more efficient. Because I thought, I don't really understand what this condenser and larger does. And actually, most condenser and largers are just half diffusion and largers anyways. They don't actually efficiently put the light through the light path. So my first thought was, hmm, I need to make, I need to understand the condenser and larger better and then make sure that more of the UV light gets through it. Because I knew about bellow factors and everything. I just didn't really get my head around how it worked in an enlarger. Yeah, I wonder if the condenser glass is just reflecting all of the UV light. Or it's coating. Or, or absorbing, right? Yeah, yeah I, sure. I was going to say it has a UV coating on it. Not passing yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the first things I had to build was I thought I can't measure anything, so my science approach is going nowhere. And there's enough of a scientist in me to think, okay, I should measure this shit first. And um, then I basically thought, okay, well, then I'll just do Arduino. I, I had done some Raspberry Pi, but not Arduino, but honestly, it's pretty easy to pick up. And I found a sensor that measured UV on, uh, uh, I don't know, um, it's, it's, there's like one, uh, I forgot the, uh, um, the, the store that makes all these sensors, but you, know, you can find it pretty easily. And I just built this together. I programmed a couple lines of code um, and uh, this was my first version of this. And it showed me that there was absolutely no UV light coming out of the bottom of the thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely none whatsoever. That thing was like, it's like breathing through a straw. It was like, you could pump in as much light as you want on the top, nothing would come out. So then I thought, okay, a um, couple of hypotheses. So probably the light is absorbing a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the UV spectrum. And um, the coatings on the enlarger lens might actually absorb a lot of the UV spectrum. Um, and if I just measure the, what comes out, at least I can adjust where the condenser and the light sit uh, relative to each other and relative to the lens. 
and then I can wiggle it about until I get the best output. And perhaps that helps. Well, actually, the geometry really did matter. And that's when I thought, OK, I need to figure out how this condenser actually works. And then I had a bit of a break, right? So um, uh, I found this um, a video from a guy called DIY Perks on YouTube who builds fantastic stuff. And one of his videos was, was actually building your own 4K projector. And a projector- I love that video. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Super right? good. Yeah, so, so that a projector is essentially a point source enlarger. And uh, it gave me some hints on that I was on the right track. And it gave me some hints on materials to use because that's always the thing, right? You don't know what you're looking for if you don't know what you're looking for. So then I thought, okay, I just need to build my own enlarger, use this same setup, use acrylic uh, Fresnel lenses instead of glass lenses because they're much larger. And it gives me the room to set up the condenser enlarger because you need much more room in between your condenser and your negative in order to have a bit of room and to get the light path right. So and I just want to point out here that that you started with, I need a, a easy and cheap way to make a large print, which then yeah. wound up yeah. building a UV light meter and then a specific enlarger <laughs> to make yeah, this print. Exactly. Yeah, so um, I get a lot of joy out of this. I just need an excuse to tell myself to do it, essentially. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how that works. But um, yeah, I, basically, I, I learned a lot about um, that video. And I have some books on um, enlargement photography and optics. And at some point in my life, I studied neurosciences and spent some time behind microscopes with laser lines and imaging cells and that kind of stuff. So. I had an inkling of what I needed to do. But yeah, so I, I designed it as a point source enlarger. And um, I basically, if you don't know what a point source enlarger is, that this is my sketch that I prepped for uh, point source enlargers, right? This is, a, this is a point source enlarger. So the key is that if you have a light source, then it has an angle at which it outputs the light where the light is still off enough, you know, um, intensity that you can consider it like sort of an homogeneous field of light. And then you have two lenses, one that actually bends it straight down so that you have parallel rays coming out, which is the, the collimating lens. And then you have one that is the converging lens, which puts it actually into a focal point that lies exactly at the uh, exit pupil of your enlarger lens. And that is what these normal condenser enlargers sort of consumer grade don't do. They don't yeah. actually focus it into the lens because that would mean that the lens had to be stationary. And right, very this different. is why you're moving the negative instead of the yeah, light. Yeah, exactly. So, so the light path is such that it, as best as I can focus it, focuses on the back of the lens, to, make, to put it very simply. And that means that if you put the negative at, at the right focal point, so at the, at the right focus point actually of the larger lens, and you pick your converging lens so that um, it covers the negative just, only just, then you have maximal efficiency. So I, I basically calculated through the whole thing to make this thing maximally efficient. And that was and, the and by, efficiency. By efficiency, you're referring to brightness, right? This is why yeah, they, exactly. they make projectors yeah. like this where brightness yeah. is important and yeah. not in largers where brightness almost doesn't matter oh. for 99% exactly. of processes. 
if you're just printing a multi-grade paper, if anything, you want your enlarge to be slower so that you have some time for dodging and burning. But um, if it's cyanotype, you want the reverse. You want this to be as bright as it possibly can. But uh, so that was the first uh, real um, breakthrough in getting this thing to work efficiently is, okay, you need to line it up. You're going to pick one print format and optimize it for that print format, and that's it. So pick a print format, optimize the thing, and then you'll get the, the most efficiency out of it. And um, that's what I started to do still with, uh, uh, with this type of, uh, uh, this type of um, LED lens. And, um, and I thought, okay, then you have like the next problem is that even though you have this setup, um, it really depends on the size of your LED, how large the opening of your lens needs to be. And that's because the opening of the lens needs to match the diameter of your light source. So when you think about that, it's pretty, pretty logical because if you have um, a point source, if you, if you imagine that you have two point sources next to each other with a certain distance in between, then they're going to focus at the back of the lens just as far apart as they are um, up on the source uh, plane. So, so basically, if your light source is too large, then you can't get all of that light into the back of your lens. That's essentially what it comes down to. So if you actually want to use a larger LED, then you'll have to have a larger lens. And this is when I started messing around with projectors to see if I could use a projector lens because I thought, oh, they're really fast. That, that might work. Um, so um, I basically got a, an old Rolleye projector and uh, it's a six by six projector made by Rolleye in Germany uh, from the 60s. And it has some really nice condenser lenses. And I just chucked the LED in the back of that to just verify if that would, if that would work. And it has a really nice big lens. Um, it's a 150-2.8. So that's properly fast. And I thought, surely that, that will actually work, right? And uh, it did to an extent, but I really got horrible focus shift on it and the edges weren't all that sharp. So given that this LED really isn't um, a point source um, and this lens is actually designed for like an arc lamp type thing, a filament lamp, um, it, it was really out of design spec and it didn't work and I had a lot of, uh, a lot of focus shift. So, but I did build it with this and then I actually I'll show you sort of the, the prototype. Yeah, so basically- I wanna know if you then took a brighter lamp and moved it farther away, or you made the lamp smaller somehow. Yeah, so I had another go on this focus shift topic with one of my Mamaya lenses, uh, 12735, mm -hmm. or 3.8, um, 12738 because I had it laying around and it had a really back, really large diameter on the back of it. So I thought, well, probably a large entrance pupil should be good. This looks, and, so for the people listening at home, maybe you can describe this looks to me exactly like the uh, yeah. plate stack from that video. Yeah, exactly. Um, with exactly. a Mamiya lens on top. Yeah. It's uh, essentially um, four threaded rods with aluminum plates with various cutouts that um, I have put on some Fresnel lenses 
And that's actually the setup from uh, this guy from DIY Perks, right? Standing on the shoulder of YouTube giants. I just mm -hmm. picked the same thing. And uh, I just uh, thought, okay, I'll build this out. Um, and this actually worked quite well because the, the entrance pupil was large enough. The, the LED was quite bright. So I could actually make some, some pictures with that. And I could, I could make up to A3, but it would still, for some reason, not focus very well. It wasn't very sharp and it still took quite a long time. So the whole setup still wasn't, wasn't all that efficient. And um, then I basically thought, okay, perhaps the transmission of that lens is just very poor. And uh, I came to the conclusion that actually you have to use an enlarger lens. And it's for two reasons. So the first is uh, the coatings and the uh, light absorption. You know, these lenses this large, like the Mamaya lenses, there's a ton of glass in there and it's all multi-coated. And those coatings are designed to keep out the UV light, especially the modern ones. So you're essentially filtering the thing that you're trying to get through it in the first place. And um, then you really get long exposure times. So that wasn't very good. And the other thing is a little bit more obnoxious, which is focus shift. So you really don't, uh, to, you really don't want to actually focus a UV lens with UV light. Uh, if it, you know, in a single point, your eyes are not going to thank you. So you have to have some, um, uh, safety glasses. Right. And also like you can't really see the UV light. Right. No. And so yeah, you're see seeing a different spectrum that is yeah. focused at a different point. Yeah. And then yeah. You have to back calculate yeah. what yeah. is in focus. You, you get very faint purple, but that also isn't actually, well, you, it's so faint you can't focus on it. But if you focus on visible light, you get massive focus shift. What I want to know is, did you build a video analyzer that looks at the UV spectrum to focus your enlarger? I, nah, I've got a much more low-tech solution in the end. But what I did in the end was I- You say low-tech, I say elegant. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know. Um, but, but basically I thought, okay, I'll just, uh, this was during the weekend, during the day or something. I just thought, I'll, I'll stick this thing on its side. I'll put the, the, the paper at a 45 degree angle. And then I'll focus in the middle with visible light. And then I'll see that it's probably not sharp in the middle, but somewhere either in front or behind. You know, this is and exactly the same method we use to calibrate the focus on a laser cutter. Very clever. I'm yeah, very so, uh, it's like you, you advise a way to just have steps, right? And then I just saw that, okay, this lens is not going to work either because I got a 40 millimeter focus shift. <laughs> it's like massive, massive focus shift. It was just terrible. Um, so yeah, I can't work with that. And um, then I really started looking at transmission and um, I figured out, yeah, probably the transmission is low, the focus shift high, I need to actually figure, figure out something else. So then the way to do it is actually to get a smaller light source because a smaller light source allows you to have a smaller lens, smaller exit pupil of your lens. And then you can use uh, a regular darkroom lens again. And they are actually uh, corrected up to say 380 nanometers, which is, where, which is near UV, which is what cyanotype is sensitive to. But also their, um, their chromatic aberration, their longitudinal chromatic aberration, so the depth of focus by color is such that 
the blue and green are really close to the near UV because black and white photographic paper is sensitive to near UV, quite sensitive. So they designed it so that you could actually focus those lenses in the dark room with visible light, say you're most sensitive to green, your eyes at least are most sensitive to green, to have that as close to near UV. And, um, and actually black and white lenses, right? Because obviously Apple corrected color lenses to print color photos in the dark room, don't do that. They try to get uh, the visible colors in the same plane uh, in, in terms of depth. So they're actually not suitable or not as suitable. Just the black and white lenses are the, suit, the, the ones that are the best. So I, I ended up just where I started with actually a darkroom lens, but then I had to have a uh, much smaller light source. And uh, actually I have one here. I had to basically haggle with uh, somebody on Alibaba to get one. But yeah, this, uh, it looks like this. Perhaps I stop share for a bit. See if I get my uh, my face uh, here on the. And Doe, could you uh, just describe what you're what we're looking at? Most people are just listening to this in their car. Oh yeah, of course. So this is actually a um, a single LED. I have four of them left. I, I bought five, but it's a it's a about a seven millimeter glass dome on a copper plate of about say forty millimeters square. And the, the, under the dome is a single 12 die UV LED, and the dome is a quartz lens. So this is great because it has a smaller diameter, which means that it's smaller than the exit pupil of uh, a darkroom lens. The quartz lens actually narrow, makes the, the bundle that comes out of this thing more narrow, so that more of the light falls on your condenser lens. And quartz actually is a great transmitter of UV. So this is like a package of efficiency right here. And is this uh, like just a Chinese knockoff of like a Cree LED? Um, but yeah, pretty much. The UV pretty spectrum. Much. Oh. But actually, I had a month-long conversation with a Chinese uh, lady who was a salesperson for some factory over there. And whenever you ask them for something, they assume you want to cure uh, resin 3D prints. Yes, I have a few of those. <laughs> yeah, so they, they don't ask what you want. They just assume that you want it for 3D printing. I said, no, I want something as powerful and small as possible. And you need to put it on a copper uh, PCB board for me because I didn't want to do that at home. So after a, a month of repeating my message, I said, fine, we'll make it for you. And uh, they sent it over and now I have a few. And it's only 40 watts. So it's less than actually what I started out with, but it's so much more efficient that I can now pretty much print whatever I want. Yeah, so that was that was pretty good, and um, the um, so the next stage was basically a bit of a bit of printing and adjusting the enlarger to this whole thing. So, so just to recap here, we wanted a simple we're we're going to do a couple of these. We wanted a simple way to make a big print, so we went to first building a UV light meter, then a couple iterations of a enlarger and then a custom uh, PCB light source for that yeah, enlarger. Exactly. Okay, yeah, and we're still exactly. not done. Let's continue. No, no, that's much worse, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, did, I, I did actually get to print, to scale up the prints now. Now I could sort of reliably print uh, up to A3 format, which is um, about, it's sort of 30 by 40 centimeter-ish. Like an 11 by 14. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I was pretty happy with that. So and now, now I could actually, oh yeah, the enlarger was built for six by seven negatives because I want to print my six by seven portraits with it. And uh, also that prevents a lot of heat problems because you're spreading heat over a larger surface. So that, that seemed like a good design choice at the time and I really wanted to use the Mamaya. Um, so, so that was actually, yeah, quite a good improvement. Um, so with that out of the way, I actually got into printing. So I was still on the Durst frame and sort of A3 was the largest format I could do. And that was going pretty well. So the next thing I, I got into is actually highlights on cyanotype are just a bitch to, to retain. They're just, it's really, really nasty to, you, you mostly get great shadow um, and mid-tones and I'm using the classic formula of cyanotype because I don't want to mess with very toxic chemicals. And everything so like you that. modified the formula to make multi-contrast cyanotypes. Is that Ooh. where we're going? <laughs> ah, something for next podcast, perhaps. But, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I just, I just bought a kit and I keep it simple because I want to do it in my house and I don't want any crazy dichromate nastiness uh, in my house. And but actually, I thought, well, now that I can control the exposure, I'm not actually, uh, I, I'm not reliant on the sun or on the brightness of the sun. I have a controlled environment. I can just apply some basic darkroom techniques. So I started pre-flashing the paper because I read this book from Mike Ware and uh, this guy has wrote, written a PhD dissertation on cyanotype. So that's really, really great. And uh, basically um, I figured out that um, the, it has, um, the inertia point of cyanotype is pretty bad. So it, uh, it takes a lot of light before you actually get density on paper. So if you think about a normal film, you have like a, a really small toe on your characteristic curve, and then it goes up linearly for a bit, and then it flattens off. But on cyanotype, the toe on, on the classical cyanotype process is really long. So now I basically pre-flash my cyanotype paper for half a minute, 40 seconds, uh, at full blast without a negative stage in there. And um, yeah, that works a lot better. You get a lot more, um, um, yeah, you retain a lot more of the highlights. Like and that. so you're pre-flashing it just up to the sort of the, the toe there, up to the linear region. So you're not actually yeah. getting um, any tone from that, but then just a little bit of light from uh, the highlights yeah. will kick it over. Exactly. That, that's yeah. the idea. That's the concept. You're loading the, the sort of the chemicals, and you're getting them to the energy stage where they're just about to pop, as it were. This is not Your cousin and I um, had a long conversation about this uh, with respect to uh, preloading or pre-deleting uh, part of the um, the uh, base layer on a direct positive print. Yeah, uh, a lot of paper. Sort of works like this, um, or, yeah, exactly. or works like this in reverse. <laughs> uh, yeah, book of yeah, but in printmaking with this, you you just have to load it for a lot, and, and uh, that, that works really well. It seems to me that this is similar to sort of the disadvantage of digital sensors compared to a film. They, it seems to me that they suffer a little bit from that same problem. 
Yeah, although if you have 14 stops to work with, you know. Yeah, but, sure, uh, but but it but I have noticed that um, certain lenses are bringing out that um, that fault. In yeah, I'm doing a lot of experimenting right now. It feels like there's a bit of the same issue, even though, of course, at a very different uh, degree. Yeah, but as long as you have a controlled environment, you can play around with it. Although on a digital sensor, I wouldn't know how to pre-flash it. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty difficult, I imagine. But uh, yeah, so beforehand, I was getting um, a lot of basically lost highlights. Uh, but afterwards, it was really a lot better. Uh, so I, I would lose highlight in, you know, you know, white sweater, right? Yeah, you can forget about it. But afterwards, um, it was actually a lot better and I got to save a lot more of it. And yeah, I got it pretty much under control now. So yeah, that's, that's working out pretty well. And um, it's really a must now. If you work with the classical formula with that characteristic curve, it's really a must, uh, I think. So yeah, and then actually that pre-flashing combined with long exposures was really annoying on the timing side. Right. So I had to basically figure out uh, a way to get like 30 second exposures or one second exposures, but also 90 minute exposures out of the same thing. And I thought, well, you know, I'm doing Arduino now anyways, so let's just actually uh, build a, a clock as well. And um, at some point I built a sous vide before they became readily available because I have an uncle who really loves to cook. And I, uh, I'm often there because he really loves to cook and I love to eat. So, uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he teaches me a, a thing or two about cooking. And this was uh, five, six years ago, at least. They, um, he said, we need to buy, we need to ma make a sous vide. He meant, you need to make a sous vide for me. We need to make a sous vide. Do you know what it is, by the way, sous vide cooking? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and um, at that point, they weren't available for consumers. There was just restaurant stuff and you'd pay uh, 600 euros, 700 euros for a machine like that. So I built one from a cheap deep fryer and some uh, parts from AliExpress. Um, and that taught me how to switch mains voltage without killing myself. And then I said, oh, since I know that, then I can also basically build a clock. And then Arduino is great because now it basically by this, you can just basically turn the rotary encoder to get the times where you want them to be for the clock. But they scale, if you're in hours, they scale by, say, five minutes. But if you are in seconds, they scale by the seconds. And basically, you can go up and down really quickly. And it's so much less annoying. And what we're looking at here is like a box with a uh, 16 by 2 LCD display, yeah, a rotary right. encoder, and a red and green button, which is exactly the same hardware as I have on the boop boop trigger. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. do something very different. Yeah, it's so democratized, right? I love it. And the 3D yeah. printer really unlocks a lot of things that I couldn't do before. Um, and it's a solid state relay, actually. Don't use mechanical ones because they'll throw off things like displays because they have lots of magnetic interference uh, when they switch. But uh, yeah, so now I have a working setup and um, quite a bit of, yeah, quite a, quite a bit of um, uh, prints made. And it, it works nicely now. And I thought, well, given that I, I could get like an A3 print and or like an 11 by 14, uh, so in 20 to 30 minutes. So that's really doable, right? That's okay, so really did you make the original print that this was all designed for? I mean, 
did you ha have you uh, <laughs> you know the the original request for the original print have you oh, yeah. That? yeah Graham, we have about eight eight more machines to go through first oh yeah i know <laughs> yeah. i know i'm just i'm just seeing no i'm seeing at this point um in, oh there it is oh, wow. okay so uh for people who are listening this is a about, I would say, a 20-inch wide, 24-inch wide piece of paper. The print oh. on it is maybe 18 uh, by, uh, well, whatever uh, your, your panoramic version of that, 18 by, by 6, uh, maybe? 7, yeah. Or, or 7. Exactly the, the format is exactly X-Pen. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. it's um, it's a beautiful print, I have to say. It is a beautiful print. Yeah, and you would, yeah, it's it's not quite like the contact print at Cyanotypes. There is more detail and depth in there. Uh, Donald scales better. Yeah, um, and I want to talk eventually about getting the paper flat, but let's go through the machine. Oh, yeah. I'm particularly I... impressed by like uh, all of the highlight detail on the water. I would not expect to see that in a yeah. cyanotype. And then little details like the filed out negative carrier that shows a little yeah. bit of the border is hey, just- uh, before we it. move on, before we move on, unshare your screen and then show that print again. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, because, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I have to comment right now that it's, um, it's not fair to keep bringing Dowie to task for taking such an elaborate route. It's not like he started out by mining iron and. You know, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> no, I love the convoluted route. Oh, yeah. Doe, you got to make some sound. So yeah, that... I, I think I have to make some noise, and you also probably have to uh, shut up a little, and then perhaps <laughs> I get into the screen, but uh, not yet, right? But yeah, so this is Vester Park in Amsterdam, and it's a favorite hangout if the weather's nice. We have a lot of shit weather in the Netherlands, so when the weather is good, everybody drops whatever they're doing and they're getting into the park. So that's this dynamic. And this was one of the first um, sort of um, joyful days in the pandemic where we could do this. So everybody was super happier. But yeah, but so this is, um, yeah, the focus actually, the, the next problem that I had to fix to get to this result, other than, well, one was scaling up the enlarger. You can see it behind me actually. Um, and uh, it's the, the first thing was scaling up the enlarger. So I, I basically took the hat of the enlarger, of the, of, of the Durst enlarger base. And I bought an old Achva Varioscope, which is extremely similar to a Focomat 2C, right? The, the, the lights Focomat, but because they basically use the same license from a third party, but it's, it's just a big chunker of an enlarger with parallel arms that go up and down. And I got it because it's cheap, it's large and when you take the hat off, you have a nice flat interface to screw something else on. Again, I can't do too many metal working, so I just had to get something that would make it easier um, and less work. And then I just built a wooden box and then stuck the original hat on the top and thought, well, that's that. That's prototype two. And um, that was actually not so hard. Just basically aligning it was a bit of a fuss, but sorted itself out pretty quickly. But then focusing is actually, actually when you make bigger prints, focusing becomes more critical. Um, and then you really get into the problem that um, you have, even though your lens transmits enough UV spectrum to make the prints, if you 
focus on the purple light you can see, you're likely having a problem with your eyes pretty soon. Um, and I was also always wearing uh, like safety glasses actually uh, underneath my own glasses. Uh, I think they're here actually somewhere here. I would just basically some industrial safety glasses and I can just put those underneath my normal glasses and nor normally nobody sees me. So this is just fine. Oh, uh, but you look <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, you know, for, you know, I, if I make my own enlarger, I'm a nerd anyway. So this, I could just as well add this to it. But, you're, you're, uh, just, you're just taking me back to my new wave days in the 80s. So. <laughs> but the point is, please be safe if you try and sit home. Uh, because you only have one pair of eyes. And if you're a photographer, you probably want to keep them. Um, but so focusing um, the light that you can see is pointless. And focusing the light that you can't see is a bit of a challenge. And uh, a normal grain focuser um, with safety glasses on, obviously, wouldn't work. Even though yeah, I had a really bright and nice one, doesn't work. So I figured, why is that? Well, you know, you can still see some form of visible light. And that's not the actual UV light that makes the picture. So I thought I need to just um, get a way of seeing this better. And the, the answer is very actually surprisingly simple. You just use copier paper and you put it on your baseboard. And then if you shine LED light on it, uh, UV light, it basically fluoresces blue. And because of the optical brighteners in the paper. And since it fluoresces exactly where the image should be, you can now basically focus on the blue image and your problem is solved. So because you're essentially you're, you're um, converting the UV light that hits the baseboard on into the top visible of the light into visible blue light, but that visible blue light comes from exactly the same spot as the invisible UV light arrived at. So I assume then that means that you cannot use a grain focuser. Are you then using oh. some sort of uh, like handheld microscope or, or magnifying yeah, so glass? Or, or possibly a lens. <laughs> you can't use a grain focuser because the grain focuser uses a virtual image, right? And a virtual image is very hard to put a, uh, a copier paper on top of, right? That's essentially yeah. the problem here. So uh, yeah, it's enlarging, right? So. Um, let, let me share my screen again, because once, once I realized this, I wonder uh, if you could use a grain focuser with a precisely mounted piece of paper, like, uh, the phosphor coating on the front of a TV, but, yeah, but maybe that's unnecessary. Of, it reflects off of the mirror. So you still have a problem. Got you. <laughs> right. Well, then you need to recalibrate where, where the, uh, where the paper is located after the, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, this is actually the enlarger in action, so to speak. But well, firstly, it's huge. But secondly, you can see the fluorescence in blue off of the copier paper. So there's nothing on the baseboard except for copier paper. And that works really well. So that was the idea, essentially. Um, we're now, then, we're now, you know, for those listening at home, looking at a photo that looks like it was shot by an architectural photographer in the 60s of like, uh, you know, Danish mid-century modern furniture, which happens to be uh, what looks, I mean, this enlarger looks to me like an astrolab mounted on a ship. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty impressive photo. It's, it's pretty large, but I love the thing. Uh, it will have to go to the basement once I'm done tinkering 
and then I'll just use it in production, so to speak. But I um, actually let me see if I can show what I wanted to show. Uh, I just switching to my Flickr account here. So, and, and I want to make sure that everybody knows that the uh, Flickr account um, with a gallery of all this stuff is linked in uh, the show notes. So you can. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah. All this stuff. And that's where you can reach me if you want to. Uh, so to take this base, so basically what I needed to build is a base, baseboard microscope to make. <laughs> we were not done with the machine. No, no of course not. That's well, so good. This is the last one though, uh, baseboard microscope. Uh, because I thought uh, if I want to improve over focusing by eye, I'll just have to make an alternative to a grain focuser. And I basically put this together in an evening from stuff that I had laying around in a drawer. So this is like the prototype and it's um, Canon FD lens, 28 millimeter, 2.8, reversed with a, micro uh, a telescope eyepiece, a Plossel eyepiece, 17 millimeter. And if you stick those together, uh, then you have a tiny microscope. But you can't put the focus plane uh, parallel to the baseboard because then you're blocking your own light. So I put it at a 45 degree angle. And then you have one line that where the image plane and the focus plane of the baseboard microscope intersect. So you have to indicate that line so you know where it should be sharp. So, and, um, and I just I have to say, um, from from this um, th this image, it's um, uh, corrugated cardboard with a piece of closed cell foam styrofoam, what we call styrofoam, yeah. polystyrene. Um, Don't forget has, the duct tape. It it has duct tape and classic beige masking tape, and so, a zip tie. And it's, oh my God, yeah. this, uh, this alone makes me just absolutely warm inside. Yeah, it's every, every piece that should go into every prototype is here. I, I have to say, I have to ask, but isn't that a corner element from something that came in a box? So it's already set at a 45 degree angle? Uh, no, I just happen to have built a hot wire cutter at some point. That comes in nicely to do this type of prototype. I was going to make the joke that you had to build a hot knife for for cutting styrofoam, but you actually did. No, no, no joke. I, mean, I think <laughs> the the most interesting thing about this is like right at that line of focus, it looks like you're using a piece of 35 millimeter film to indicate yeah. Yeah. what should be in focus. Exactly. I put it on top of uh, just a magazine print, which is like a dot matrix. So if you really zoom into it, so I could really see really well where. It was in focus, so it allowed me to adjust the thing. And then I used to fit on a bit of uh, film leader uh, with a cutout to indicate where that is if you look through the thing. And um, oh, we're getting into that. And this is what you see through through the thing. So you see the target indicated by this piece of film, and then you can see that it's sharp. Wonderful. So that's how it would work. And also, there's so much glass in between what you see and your eye. And it's such a large, it's such a small piece of such a large baseboard that you don't have to worry much about UV. There's no UV coming through. Um, some of it has been converted to blue. That is what you see. The multicoated lens and all the glass in between you, uh, the baseboard and your eye, it's fine, right? Um, so having, that, having done that, having established that it worked because I got this sharp uh, print, I thought, okay, I'll do a more serious version of it. 
Um, and that's this. Oh, yeah. So this is where I can just, you know, 3D print at my heart's content. I just printed a couple of mounts for it on this aluminum uh, extrusion. I basically flipped a 45 degree angle bracket for it, glued it on a base of acrylic, and I just drilled the hole for the acrylic at the right place. I yeah, ran I out of those aluminum angles yesterday, yeah. and so I started 3D printing them. Yeah, <laughs> I've got yeah exactly. Is that acrylic laser cut with the hole for what should be in focus? No, that acrylic is cut with a regular wood saw uh, and drilled with a step drill. Wow. Which works pretty well, actually. The step drill is great because you don't end up with nasty edges. And just a wood saw on uh, acrylic, that's fine. Just go slow. And uh, I don't have a laser cutter yet. <laughs> so, but but end of the day um, works quite nice, and uh, you need it to get uh, your twenty by I'm now on twenty by twenty six inch prints. Um, so yeah, you need it, and and you need it also just because when you blow it up so big that it's uh, very dim and and hard to see, or um no actually that's fine with a copier paper trick it's actually quite good yeah I mean, it's not dim at all but uh, you still need an exposure time for uh yeah about an hour 15 minutes um i can show you a print uh that i actually made the last one i made because i wanted to finish it for the podcast actually um So this is the size I'm now on. Wow. And uh, just and just imagine that the, the, the cool bit here is that after a little bit of you know marginal improvements here and there, these prints took the same exposure time. That's crazy. So, and and are and we I'm looking at like a is that twenty by twenty-four or, or um, uh, the paper this size is sixty-five. It's uh, so it's twenty by twenty-six inches. Wow. So yeah, that just works really well. My ambition was to make something that I could put on a wall in a museum type size. I don't have enough walls, but I guess I'll find it somewhere elsewhere. So yeah. Um, but, uh, and for the yeah. people watching at home, um, the, the big print he, he's already said is 20 by 26, and he, but he held up a small print that is uh, five by seven something in- Yeah, four by six inches. So four I went from six. four by six to 20 by 26, keeping the exposure time the same. Um, and that's just efficiency of the point source and larger and a couple of tricks here and there. But um, yeah, and, and this print is surprisingly flat because that's what you wanted to get to, right? Yeah, part of, part of uh, the, um, uh, part of anybody who's ever worked with cyanotype and I can uh, pull a couple out um, right there is that the cyanotype is, I mean, and that's a pretty flat cyanotype. I'm holding it up and yeah. you can see some bend because you're taking a paper that has been properly dried and you and you're putting a liquid on top of it and then yeah. you're putting it back in the water and you're doing all that type of stuff the big thing is not so much after uh, the development process of cyanotype where 
you put it in water and wash and some of the blue washes away. Um, it is instead in the in the process of of putting the cyanotype um, liquid on top of the plain paper and then exposing it because you don't have a uh, I mean I don't have a way of flattening it. How did you get that flat paper so that you it didn't looked like have... very thick thick paper? It's, um, it's um, watercolor paper. 300 okay. pounds per square meter. Uh, okay. So it's it's thick. So so that is that definitely helps. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Have you? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. So watercolorists, watercolorists actually will stretch the paper on a frame uh, because they yeah. have the same problem because you're getting it wet on one side repeatedly, and it, it's just like anything. It's an organic material, and it's going to dry yeah. unevenly, and it's going to cup and bubble. And it has memory and the fact that it's thick isn't necessarily entirely a solution and i'm not sure how you yeah. kept it so flat but uh, watercolor painters use it use a stretching frame so there's essentially there's two stages right so the first stage is you have the raw paper and you're going to coat it with the cyanotype protein and that needs to dry and then you expose it and then you wash it off and then the paper gets completely submerged and really really wet and then you dry it again so that so those are the, the stages. Now, the most difficult to get flat is actually the coating stage because you don't have an even wetting. It's only in the middle and only on one side. And then when you put fluids on paper, the paper fibers are going to swell up. And that is very uneven. So it's almost unavoidable that you get a, a wobble. But the larger the print, uh, the less important it is because you put it down on the easel. If you're making a really large print, you have actually substantial depth of field on the baseboard end. There's, there's hardly any depth of focus on the lens end, on the, on the negative stage, because that's not important. I mean, I print between uh, a glass sandwich, right? Glass negative carrier. That's not, that's not so important. But you have about a centimeter at least um, of wobble that you can absorb with just by depth of field on, on the baseboard. So I don't really worry about a bubble in the paper uh, when I get printing. The way I deal with it to get to keep the paper down these days is I just put a metallic whiteboard on top of my um, baseboard of my enlarger. I also happen to need that because it's larger than the actual baseboard. But mm -hmm. and then I use met, um, magnetic strips. So these okay. these um, rare earth magnet uh, mix strips, neodymium, and they are very strong. And you can basically just clamp it down and it's much more effective than uh, like a vacuum diesel or something like that. This is how I hold things flat on my laser cutter bed as well. It's hundreds yeah. of neodymium magnets. Yeah, and they're, they're very strong. And so it works on the paper coating, but then it still wobbles because of course you can't clamp it down where the coating is, but that's fine. Then on the printing stage, at least you keep the edges of your prints really flat on your baseboard. And then in the actual drying of the print, what I do is I basically, um, if you use the original formulation cyanotype, it really sits on top of your paper. It's hydrophobic, it doesn't sink in so much, which is great because you don't really need to wash it that long. And then you try to do that 10 minutes, stops. Then you take it out, 
And then what I do is I let it drip off. I put it on the, the cleaned whiteboard face down. Then I squeegee the back of it. And I basically use kitchen paper towels to absorb everything that comes off the edges. I basically take a paper towel and basically um, wipe the back while I put the paper on. I go over it with my hands and I try to absorb as much as I can. Then I take it off. Now, basically, the face side is still quite wet. I wipe the board down. Then I put it face up on the same board. Then I basically put the kitchen towel on the face side and tap that dry, as dry as I can. And then I cover the entire perimeter with this magnetic tape to clamp it down. And then I wait for a day. And then I get really, really flat uh, prints. But trying, easy. Get, <laughs> yeah, but trying to get as much water off of it is really crucial because I think that the paper is not fully um, um, saturated wet after the washing stage. So what I think happens is the water that is on the print, whilst you think it's already drying, actually that water is being absorbed and the fibers swell up because it's not under tension when you're drying it, right? If it was completely saturated, it would have already been swollen up and then you would clamp it on the sides and then it would shrink and then you'd have tension on it. But that's only if you wash it to the point that it's saturated. But since you wash it really shortly, it's not saturated at all. And the water that's left on either side of the print will actually be absorbed into the fibers and only then dry. And that's, I think, the problem. It sounds like stud studying the snowpack to try and predict avalanche conditions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's quite some, uh, but yeah. So, all in all, uh, this has been going great. I've been at it for a couple of months now, but uh, yeah, I, I have the format that I want now. Now, it, now it's just a matter of learning to print it better, getting the coating more consistent, because sometimes you get little flecks of the coating that after the washing just uh, get off of the page. I don't know if you guys experience the same thing, but you get white specks because the coating damages in the in the washing stage. Might be like I might need to try some other papers, or I might need to pre-wet the paper before coating, or coat it twice. I, you know, if only we knew somebody who did a lot of cyanotype coating. Oh yeah, Nicole Small. Nicole yeah, Small, I, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, email her, see if she has an yeah. answer to that. Yeah, um, I was wondering this whole time if if you had seen her cyanotype series. Like, there's, it goes deep into like two episodes on just paper selection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely uh, watched a lot of it already, but it would be good to have a conversation on it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she should definitely uh, build something to make sure that she doesn't only do uh, cyanotypes in, in summertime. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this is the idea that you're doing cyanotypes. You're doing a, uh, a print that has a very, very specific visual look. It is something that is non-standard. It is something 
where we're looking, you know, our brain has to adjust from a grayscale to a blue scale, right? Yeah. Um, so what was it about the, the cyanotype that really grabbed your eye other than, hey, I could do a large print in my, um, you know, in, in my apartment. Yeah. And, and the, then I'm getting, and then part two, when you go out and shoot photographs, are you, are you making any adjustments? Are you looking at that and saying, oh, that's going to really be horrible in cyanotype or wow, those tones are going to work great in cyanotype. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, it appealed to me because there is um, a very clear cut uh, between doing something digital and looking for perfection versus doing something by hand and doing something that is an artistic expression rather than a casual digital photograph. Mm -hmm. And with digital photography, it's so ubiquitous that to me it feels that people wouldn't recognize an average digital photograph as an attempt at expression. And so photography is like a reduction of reality. And if you're doing it for art purposes, then you want people to at least see that you're trying to express something. The, and, and they can't ignore it because it is, it is not the standard. So yeah. it is a decision that is obvious. Yeah, and so, it's, so the more digital becomes ubiquitous, the more I feel drawn to doing something that is more alternative. And um, the cyanotype really is that. And you get a lot of positive reactions to it. And people really don't really know what it is. You have to start the entire conversation around, well, this is a cyanotype, and that's a process invented in 1842. These are 14 machines football. I built. And yeah, well, that, well, that, yeah, that really does kill, kill the mood for most people. <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but, but so it's really, uncommon and people do react to it they really actually look at your prints because they think hey what, what the hell is this so that is really attractive it's also really attractive that you can do everything yourself i get a lot of um satisfaction out of the mastery component of the process you you, you have to fight for getting a good result right it's not easy if it was easy i was probably bored by now but i'm not um, so there is a little bit of uh, blood, sweat and tears that goes into doing it. Um, and actually, the state I'm in right now, the, the pre-visualization is very close to pre-visualizing black and white. But you will end up with a blue tone. But the, the Prussian blue gets really, really dark blue. And I find that mentally you adjust really quickly to uh, cyanotype versus black and white. It goes really, have you, really naturally. Have you tried any of the toning? Um, systems, you know, you can tone it with tea, you can tone it with, I assume coffee, uh, you can tone it, I'm sure with, with a ton of different things and get, and yeah. go closer to brown, yeah. go closer to, to blacks. No, I haven't, but that's great. It just cost me another couple of months. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, no, I haven't actually, I'm, I, I really like the blue, to be honest. I, and, and I also am a sucker for contrast. And I find that uh, the toning does take away a lot of contrast. But to be honest, I haven't really reached that stage because I thought I'm not done with actually getting the technique to work vanilla. Uh, so let's just do that first and then, and then move on. Can I ask, uh, um, it's kind of a makery question that that, that uh, brings up. Um, I often think about like 
you know, I'm, uh, there's some people who have like a sort of flashlight intelligence and some people who have like laser beam, you know, which means to me kind of like people who can focus on a lot of things at once and have sort of a, like a broad knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then other people tend to like me, uh, ignore the entire world and like know a lot about <laughs> one, like, like colored oh. translation in anaglyphs. Um, I assume you are a, uh, we're more of a laser beam guy. Uh, and yeah, and when you said focus on one thing at a time, I, I wonder sort of like in your, your making things process, if yeah. you just do one project or if you have like five or six things going on at once or. Uh, I tend to park things, but so I can, I can have like a lot of parallel hobbies, but I then tend to do one quite intensively and then switch and it's sort of a circle. So I touch on my favorite topics every now and then and I get really deep into a thing and then park it again and get deep into something else. So I'm definitely not doing these types of projects multiple at a time. I wouldn't know how to combine that with working, etc. But, um, and I, I do enjoy bringing broad knowledge into a single project. So, um, and then I, for this, this now gets into the more artistic, the phase where it's more like it's ready for using it as a tool for expression rather than taking out the saw and the, the drill and making it better. I can, I'm sort of reaching the stage where now it has to be used as a tool for expression rather than just nerding until there is no possible avenue left to make it better. Okay, um, so that's so that gives me the, the next question. What do you like better, building the device to make the print or making the photograph and making the print? And and we're all, believe me, we all straddle, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but, um, but what's, there, what's there, yours? Yeah. So I got the, the, the big print I just showed you. I, I was very, very happy that that worked and how it came out. And there's a, a group of, uh, I recently joined a, a group of um, analog photographers in Amsterdam. Um, I bought something on say Dutch eBay like a year ago mm -hmm. and picked it up in person. Turned out this was an organizer of a club. And then a year later, he called me back. Said, yeah, we can have a photo walk now. Would you like to join? I said, yes, of course. And since a couple of weeks I'm joining, uh, I, I've joined their WhatsApp group and I'm sharing some stuff and everybody is really enthusiastic about it. Uh, so after the recording, I'll send them the link actually. But um, I get a lot of sense of like a, a sense of um, victory out of the stage where you can actually make the print. But I also get a, a lot of satisfaction out of the, um, a good portrait shoot or a really nice street photography photo that prints really well. So yeah, I, I do actually, uh, I have phases of expression and phases of construction, so to speak. I don't know what I like better, but I can't and, I can't stay in one for too long because then I get to then it gets too boring. So I have to point out that even if you if one preferred building cameras to using them, you're not going to design and build really good ones unless you do use them. Um, yeah, it's a, a fault of a lot of <clears throat> modern design is is done by people who don't actually use the product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, <laughs> or people who sell kitchens but never cook in them, design terrible layouts, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, yeah. So now we're, we're, we're kind of heading a little bit towards um, our, our uh, favorite questions. So what's on the horizon? What's coming down the pike? What, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's yeah. next? 
it's a cooking project. You guys are going <laughs> to love this. <laughs> it, it's all uh, going to be blue food, though, right? It's all. <laughs> uh, well, I did make some limoncello the other day, but uh, that that was so. So there's some of that. No, but so there's there's two avenues that I'm going to pursue, and um, the one is artistic. So I have a, I have like three things I want to do and print in cyanotype. The first is shot uh, shoot street panoramas in Paris with my self home-built panoramic camera and then do a series of hopefully very Parisian looking uh, panoramas in cyanotype. So that's the first project I want to do with it. Um, and then the second uh, artistic project is actually, um, I do portraits on, on six by seven uh, studio and I, I painted my own background. You're not surprised, obviously. But um, so so they, they look sort of, um, oh yeah, this is by the way, like a street, street photography in, a, in Amsterdam um, in the Jordaan, uh, which is the, the area of the city where I live. Um, somebody is enjoying the first rays of sun whilst having his food delivered on the sidewalk because pandemic. So this is just the first moment of jubilation. It's, it's the same day as the larger print. But so I want to do this kind of stuff, but in Paris. Um, and then um, I want to do something related to the history of um, cyanotype. So you probably know that like cyanotype was invented uh, in 1842 uh, by Herschel. Um, and one of the first people to actually use it was Anna Atkins. And she was a botanist and she made the first photographically illustrated book by making um, uh, not, well, not photographic prints, but photograms of uh, plants on cyanotype paper. And then basically have a white plant on a black, uh, on a blue background. So just for the sake of it, I had to try that. And I just had to go with it. Yes, it works. I could have predicted that, but now I want to actually make portraits of people and then print those as photographs, but then at the same time, make it a photogram by adding things related to them. And this is, a, this is like a test uh, because the guy, the photo suggests that he is an engineer, but this was just what I had laying on my desk and he's not an engineer. <laughs> so yeah, a little bit of uh, history falsification if they dig this up in a hundred years. You and are the engineer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the engineer. Yeah, well, not really, but I'm just like, I'm a tinkerer with, well, with some perseverance. We so, so play them on YouTube. I would read that a little differently. What that says is you're nuts. Okay, so let's describe this. Uh, let's describe this for for people who are only listening. It, it's a, a portrait, uh, lots of light on one side of the face, uh, very little, uh, lots of shadow on the other side of the face, and then there's a, a digital caliper and um, six, analog caliper. Oh, analog caliper, um, <laughs> and six um, uh, hex nuts. Um, scattered across so they look so to be m8 we've got we've got a tonal yes. scale on one side and then we've got a very harsh silhouette of these devices on the other yeah. side of the image. and and in order to make this work um i have to ex i have to use uh, extreme lighting 
because I essentially need to make sure that I have area on the negative left to then do the photo brand. Otherwise, there's no room and it doesn't look as good. I need you want that binary contrast on the one end and then the, on another area of the same picture, you want the picture, so to speak. So, so that's something that, uh, that I'm working on. And I already uh, actually scaled up to the, the, the current format because I have a portrait that I want to do with this, but I want to do actually the, 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 the Anna Atkins flowers and leaves uh, next to a female portrait. But then you figure out that flowers and leaves don't come in the sizes you might want them to. So if you want flowers and, and fl leaves and whatever. You got to go um, to the Amazon, find bigger um, flowers. Uh, no, actually the flowers couldn't get small enough. So the print had to be bigger. So, you know, something's got to give. Um, so yeah, so okay. those are the immediate like artistic avenues with this. Um, hey, Doe, then, have you seen, uh, I don't know if you know David Allen from the Danger Boys. He has a series of prints where he's printing uh, large format negatives, just regular black and white prints, but he will take his cell phone and take a scan of that and invert it and then put it on the print as well and it, it it really visually reminds me of of your photogram combined portraits yeah where you know it's like a commentary on this thing where you see like the beautiful uh you know four by five print blown up however big with a photogram of an iphone on it projecting a smaller yeah, iPhone photo. Exactly. That's, really, that's really comical and i also thought about um uh, making macro photos of flowers and then drying the flower and then having the photo of the thing and the thing in the same picture. And then you can do also do that with like um, uh, a model built of say a car or an airplane. You can make a picture of the airplane, but then also the, uh, the uh, injection molded sheets of the parts next to it and basically have that in one photo. And then I'll take a picture of a bunny and a squash bunny and just for comical effect. <laughs> but so, there's, so I know. So I know of an artist who makes uh, prints this that way that are traditional color prints, you you know, made with various uh, like woodcut processes. Um, and she combined dried flowers in her originals and they look good. But then um, to make a more affordable product, she had digital copies made. And these are poster sized prints and something about then returning it back into a single photograph uh, really worked. And because the, the textures and the qualities were different, but the ren rendering all became more consistent. Um, so yeah. th that's a, a really interesting second step if you combine real objects and a print and then re-photograph it to bring it all back together. Yeah, like a, like a follow-up step to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would be very interesting. And eventually, if I want to do, if I want to actually share this, I'll have to digitize most of it anyways. Otherwise, everybody has to come to my house, which is not a good plan. But um, uh, yeah, but yeah. So so there's enough actually artistically to do with this, and then technically, I'd love to actually build this into a more universal and larger where I can more easily uh, move the negative stage, um, and also make it light tight enough that I could actually build an interchangeable light source, so regular versus UV, and then also use it as a regular and larger uh, to just build black and white, and partially to save some space in my very small uh, apartment, 
um, partially just because it's cool. Um, and that and brings us back to uh, the aluminium uh, extrusions, right? Because I think that's a perfect building material with all the 3D printing technical parts that you can get so easily now. And uh, yeah, I think that would be the perfect uh, sort of, uh, yeah, kit of materials to build this from. And, and then you rail can, sliders you, to uh, you, send you an STL of. <laughs> you can you can move into other uh, wavelengths too. You know you've got your X-ray enlarger uh, coming up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but actually there's um, a company in the Netherlands called called ASML, and they make wafer steppers. And uh, these are the machines that that actually expose the semiconductors. Um, for semiconductor uh, production, so that's uh, that that high tech stuff is all in the south of the Netherlands, and uh, they use uh, extreme UV. That is like one step above X-ray, and that gets so hard to to push through lenses that they've given up and they're just using mirrors. So Zeiss is making very very precise, very very precise mirrors to get all that stuff done in vacuum. So that but that's pretty cool, but. Um, I, I could ask if I can borrow one for photographic purposes. I'll, I'll probably say no. My buddy Joe has a Nikkor wafer stepper lens, uh, like in, from the machine that must have cost $140,000 at some point. Uh, he works at Intel, but they they tossed it when they moved to a different uh, uh, different technology. But the problem with it, it, you know, it's this piece of glass, like, you know, the size of a bowling ball. Um, and it's, I think, an single element because they controlled the wavelength so well before you know in the source that they didn't have to worry about any chromatic aberration and we tried it you know uh thinking about putting it on big cameras it was totally worthless yeah, for yeah, any yeah. sort of photographic application yeah but once you start working with a single wavelength such as these leds it becomes really really mm -hmm. uh, difficult to actually Get your head around some of these things because I eventually I landed on a three three eighty five nanometers UV LED because I figured out that there's like this magical crossover where the transmission of the lens drops up dramatically below say three seventy and the the sensitivity of the UV process drops off going above three ninety so there was sort of a logical optimum to put it. And um, yeah, if you, do, if you don't actually look into the sensitivity curve of the cyanotype and the transmission curve of the lens, you're probably not going to find that. So that was yeah. a real, that's real nasty. And then the sensor on my meter actually peaks at 355. So, and I can't, if I can find the sensor that will do 385-ish, I'll be much better off. But it, I'm, just met, I'm just working on the toe of the sensitivity of that sensor. It, it's really not. Um, um, it, it's really a bit of a puzzle to get all that stuff sorted out. So just broad spectrum visual is so much easier. Yeah. Okay, Doe, is there anything that we haven't asked you? I'm sure there's a million things we haven't asked you about uh, related to this, but uh, that you'd like to talk about on the Homemade Camera Podcast. Ah, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a topic that is quite engineering related, which is like. Um, kitchen table precision engineering. Uh, like, like rather the lack of it, right? So uh, to do alignment, I built a laser aligner and then I got into a real 
side way on how to actually uh, calibrate that to a, an agreeable level. Um, but I think it's really interesting that now that you have tabletop CNC, you have tabletop 3D printing uh, and all these types of things, it's been a real accelerator for me to make something decent, right? Because you can make something that feels hacky and will always be hacky. But I think so many people can now make things that are actually quite decent looking and functioning. And I find that very liberating. I, I'm sure you, well, you use it daily probably, but I think that you get so much creativity and innovation out of the fact that more people have access to the tools and the tools aren't as hard to use anymore. So I find it very, liber very liberating. And in the, in the context of photography, it gives you yeah, kitchen table precision engineering. And that actually leads to building things that, that commercially would never be viable, but are a lot of fun. And I think that's going to just keep our subculture alive for so much longer. I think we'll actually become fully self-sufficient at some stage uh, when there will be guys making film, there will be guys making uh, shutters, there will be guys making enlargers, because we probably can't rely as analog photographers or alternative process photographers, we probably can't rely on industry at some point anymore when nothing has nothing is actually commercially viable anymore. And I find, find it- yeah, really I, I mean, I think even right now it, it limits the, you know, so like a lot of things are not commercially viable at a reasonable scale, but you yeah. know, for somebody like me, it, it makes it commercially viable if I'm one or two people. Uh, and I think there's yeah. a whole bunch of folks who are- and, and it becomes commercially viable because you're tapping into a niche that is very passionate and willing to part with their money. Mm -hmm. And also, it doesn't all have to be about commerce. If you, if you, uh, if you make, you know, homemade film, you can trade with somebody who makes homemade cameras. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's a bigger goal than making money for most people involved in this sort of subculture. You know, um, so I had saved this for the shout out section, but I'm it, it relates. Um, I don't know if you know Azriel Knight. He's a YouTuber and a friend of mine. He does a lot of like photo history stuff that I really love. He does a segment called uh, This Old Camera. But he recommended this book to me um, by somebody that I follow on YouTube and have been a fan of for years and years. It's my goal one day uh, to meet Adam Savage. But uh, I've been reading Every Tool is a Hammer, uh, which is sort of a memoir. And he's sort of talking about uh, his maker process and, and how he came to sort of ideas and philosophies behind everything. Um, uh, if, if you haven't read it, I'm going to recommend it to anybody who listens to this podcast. We, we're going to have to have a long discussion about that. But, you know, when, when you were talking about um, precision desktop engineering, it really brought me back to this chapter that he writes about tolerance, right? And he talks about it in you know, a purely engineering and and technical sense where tolerance is sort of the space between pieces that fit. And then also in sort of a more philosophical sense where you have toler like, like uh, you know, uh, religious tolerance or, or you know, uh, tolerance of your little sister or, um, but, but sort of tolerance in making a project for uh, how much time you have or how many uh, iterations that you will yeah. tolerate before yeah. you give it up and uh, it's, it's something that you know I am 
always thinking about is how do you make precise movements with sloppy tolerance parts, right? Like the Japanese method of making things uh, from the 50s rather than the German method of making super precise parts without adjustments. Um, yeah, it, it makes me wonder if you have thought, and, oh, the other thing that really, the first time I noted this in the conversation was uh, when you were talking about um, not buying 20 cameras to cut each time and, and taking a lot of time uh, because you didn't want to, uh, I think this was when you were talking about making yeah. your panoramic camera, you know, a lot of, you know, project tolerance can just be time if you don't have the tolerance to destroy five cameras to get there. And I sort of wonder how you think about this, um, particularly like, like building precision instruments with uh, slop, I don't want to say sloppy tolerance, but like you got, you got some cardboard covers there, uh, but then precise M8 threaded rods. And, and so yeah. you clearly have thought a lot about like using precision where you need it and not using precision where, where you don't. I, I wonder how you think. Yeah. So, so I'll make parts with a glue gun and I'll make parts and I'll adjust other parts with a laser tool. Right. And that is just, um, I'm acutely aware of the time that I put in because I want to get to a result. But um, at the same time, I can also design something very slowly because I want to, I enjoy making it beautiful. That happens at the same time. But uh, it, yeah, it helps to think about what type of end precision do you need to get and what is the bottleneck. I tend to, I tend to focus on solving the bottlenecks and ignore the rest and then a new bottleneck will rear its ugly head once I finish with the, the former one, right? And then if you do that, um, you're, you're pretty sure that you're working on the right things to make the output better. And also you're not so much distracted by spending time on things that really don't matter at the stage you're at. Um, so for instance, I discovered that if you're printing cyanotypes, a little bit of light leakage out of your enlarger is really just insignificant because you're pre-flashing your paper for 40 seconds. So, you know, what is a little bit of bounce off of the walls going to do? Nothing. So am I going to work on that now? No, because my paper is curling up, right? And that's my general attitude. If it doesn't matter at this stage, I'll allow it to become a problem later. Um, but yeah, I do at the same time, when I start out a project, have some general design thoughts, right? I don't just start gluing an entire enlarger together out of cardboard because you know you need you can see some things coming so i do try to make an intelligent design and one lesson is of course yeah one lesson out of 3d printing essentially is that you get a sense for where you need slop to make it work and then some at some points you just think oh i can't deal with slop i need to find a different method of doing things and, so, yeah. yes, so I'm a steel fabricator and the thing that really makes this work for me, I have to balance it. When you weld things, they change shape and they distort. And so what I found is you figure out what the crucial uh, plane of precision is and you create a jig that takes care of that precision. And then you can connect those dots with any sort of amorphous form or shape or whatever it is, as long as you control yeah. that crucial, crucial set of dimensions. And it frees you up too to make things that are very organic and interesting and, and reduce the precision to 
the only the essentials. And I think it's actually a, a really uh, good way to work from an artistic point of view as well as practical, um, because you don't constrain everything that yeah. doesn't need to be constrained. And I also love um, tricks to actually get things into alignment by the properties of, you know, cameras, lenses, etc. Just exploit properties. So. You know, if you are using something with a laser, just use a longer beam path and then you get more precision, right? Just optical leverage. So these things, and they're more artistic almost than precision because you can just buy more precise tools. But if you know better tricks, they cost you nothing. They're very elegant. And, and there's sort of a, a joy that you can get out of fixing a problem in an elegant way, right? For instance, the, 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 the focus shift thing I showed you. I just remembered somewhere to seeing that on um, a fine tune for an autofocus for a digital SLR type of thing it just stuck with me. And I thought, well, this is a trick that you can use for this situation. And that is really where experience comes in and where you exactly, well, you achieve a, a higher level of quality with super low technology, but it's just nice to know those tricks and make things better with less effort. It just feels like real progress. I think that is a good segue into speaking of, uh, of, you know, tips and tricks and things you pick up along the way. Um, as we wrap up the show, uh, is there any person, YouTube channel, book, uh, place that you have you've learned some camera related or photographic related things that you might recommend uh yeah there's a book post exposure by stein um by focal press which is really great because it talks about a lot of technical pitfalls you have in the darkroom which i read uh to become a better printer of just regular you know regular rc multigrade nothing fancy or something but it helped me along a lot. And it goes basically much more to first principles than just do this like this and it works. So that was super helpful. Um, and other than that, I think get to a crappy result and iterate. Um, something I took away from working in companies that make software. Of course, you do have to go beyond the crappy result at some point. But the lessons that you learn in making something crappy that works in a crappy way are so much better than trying to get to a great result after lots of theoretical thinking, only to discover that, for instance, your tools wouldn't be precise enough or preach, preach brother, preach. Yeah. <laughs> Just get something out there and you don't have to show to anybody. But also, actually, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So if I think it's crappy, other people think it's interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think ah, clearly I need to work on these and these and these things before it's good enough. But, I never uh, have. Yeah, people who look at my stuff never have that illusion. <laughs> no, but so so um, yeah, just and just be be willing to fail and to make something ugly and to just cut polystyrene and use a glue gun. Because you're going to learn quicker if you discover the governing mechanisms quicker. Great. 
I, I could not agree more. Uh, Graham, Nick, do you guys have any uh, shout outs or things that you want to get off your chest before we wrap up? Uh, I just want to shout out to a couple of lens punks, uh, Dom Silverthorne and Eric Matthew. Um, stay tuned to the Sunny 16 Presents feed and you might hear us talking about uh, homemade lenses. Uh, Nick. Uh, nothing special this week. Okay, and I got one, uh, which I mentioned earlier, but I think anybody who listens to this podcast and, and Nick and Graham and Doe, I think you guys would all really enjoy this book and identify with a lot of it. And I'm actually curious to talk about it later to see how much of it you sort of have picked up along the way or you think he's just saying obvious things. I really dig this book. It's called Every Tool is a Hammer by Adam Savage, who's a... Uh, an idol of mine that I would love to meet one day. And it was recommended to me by Asriel Knight, who has a really great YouTube channel, uh, often about photographic product history. Okay. Well, I, I haven't read that, but I do know that the hammer is the essential tool. <laughs> well, everything's a hammer. If you um, start, if you start with a hammer, you can make anything else eventually. Okay. Doe, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, I'm not terribly active, but you can actually find me uh, on my Flickr account. Uh, you can see me post sometimes on the Rangefinder forum and Photo Trio. Um, and yeah, if you really, really need to get in touch, you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. And, and we'll uh, have those links in the show notes. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Um, do uh, I think we should say at this point, um, thanks to Robbie Cribs who uh, composed our music and allows us to play it in each episode. Um, and uh, thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. <laughs>